Welcome back to the Op Show, where we bring you the trials and tribulations, the automations and collaborations from the world of DevOps and the greater developer experience. I'm your host, Tristan Pollock, and as always, with CTO.ai founder Kyle Campbell. In our best show yet, we have Nij Gore, an amateur pizza chef and president of the cloud division of Zeta Global, one of the largest big data companies in the world. Uh, very excited to hear about that. Welcome, Nij. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Tristan. Um, tell us a little bit about your story uh, and uh, how you got to where you are today. I know you've involved a lot of startups and totally. ups and downs, and uh, it's been quite the journey you met up along the way in San Francisco as well. Thanks, Tristan. I will. And before we get started, I just want to comment that my mug, which is a Lion King mug, nicely matches your shirt. So. Uh, <laughs> Props on the uh, props on the, <laughs> on the fashion choice for the day, um, but yeah, I can give you a little we bit. We didn't of even story. plan that. I know we didn't even plan that. So, uh, yeah. So you know, I have been a technology and other entrepreneur uh, since graduating from college. I had my first startup grad when I was graduating from college, and I sold it to a company in Boston. Um, if to date myself a little bit, that first company was building intranets that layered upon college ERP systems. Um, this was before you could do things like registering for classes online or checking your grades online. So that was back in 1999, 2000. And then uh, that sort of ignited my passion for startups and building things. And since then, I've had the pleasure of being part of several types of uh, startups ranging from owning a couple bars in San Francisco that I built from ground up to a coffee company in roastery here in Oakland and now around the world to about three other uh, technology companies that were usually in data machine learning and marketing technology so the most recent one was a company called Boomtrain that was really a AI platform for marketers that was acquired by Zeta Global just over three years ago and has now become one of the core stacks that lives within Zeta Global. And Zeta, for those of you who don't know, is a marketing technology company that specializes in really driving acquisition, growth, and retention outcomes for enterprise marketers. And we have, as Tristan mentioned, one of the largest consumer data assets in North America. And uh, you may have heard of some of the brands that we own like Discuss, which is the largest commenting platform in the world and, and others. Um, but uh, that's my current role there really is to be the steward of the data cloud division, which is really underpins and powers most of our data-driven technology solutions for the largest enterprises uh, around. Impressive. So a little bit about Zeta. Is Zeta sort of a portfolio of brands you found your way there by acquisition, and obviously there's other brands that we would know about. It, it very much used to be uh, kind of like a portfolio of companies that were acquired almost in a private equity style model. Um, when they acquired Boomtrain, the, the company itself started to migrate to more of a product first company. So now if you look at Zeta, it looks very different than it looked three or four years ago. Um, now it's you know very, very product led. Um, it's a marketing technology company. We have certain assets that contribute to the data asset um, that we that we cultivate and uh, and maintain, and and then you know we leverage that data in different ways. But uh, you know this year, for example, Forrester rated us as uh, the top platform for uh, marketing tech 
uh, amongst a very crowded ecosystem of companies that included, you know, Oracle and Salesforce. So, you know, it's probably the, the largest marketing technology company that very few consumers have ever heard of because we just don't spend a lot of money on marketing ourselves, but that's starting to change too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe this is uh, something you can pull up on the screen, Tristan, but uh, I noticed, I think it was yesterday in the ops community, you shared, you know, obviously a very thin slice of some of those insights yeah. that you're able to drive, but it, it put a little bit of context for me in how you're able to use different kinds of data to drive uh, what seems like very macro level insights yep. around so, this crazy yeah. world we're in. It, it, the world has been absolutely nuts. And, um, you know, it's really the combination of several things coming together at the same time. It's a combination of, um, you know, a condition that's kind of like the Dust Bowl with the race riots, with the pandemic, all sort of converging at the same time. So, you know, this gives you a view of some different indices that we track on a macro level, things like, you know, how are people dining in and out? Um, how are people visiting stores? Are people still moving their houses? Are they still buying homes? You can think of what these things end up powering our underlying use cases for marketers. For example, um, I recently did a webinar with Burger King and Panera, and um, it was really interesting to see and hear about how their data-driven strategies evolved entering COVID and how the two different brands had bounced back. You know, Burger King was really enabled from a from a um, technical perspective and a digital perspective, and Panera wasn't. A lot of their business was based on lunch catering, you know, in offices. So they really had to make quick pivots. So people leverage the type of insights that we provide to figure out, you know, where the market is he uh, heading as a leading indicator. But behind every one of those bars in the bar chart and behind every economic graph that we put up or any market-driven graph, there are actual people behind that. It's all people-based marketing. So everything in our world re revolves back to and resolves back to an individual. And that individual can be acted on in different ways. You know, you could learn how to reach them programmatically. You could learn how to reach them from a email perspective or a connected TV perspective. Now that connected TV is becoming much more of a prevalent channel, but the general theme of the last six months, huge compression to digital. So uh, there was even a point, you know, a few months ago when people were afraid to check their mail, um, not everywhere, but in, in a lot of the US. And so, you know, even direct mail, which is a huge channel for so many marketers and enterprises started to lose its value. So that even in, in that kind of established channel, um, a lot of the business started to shift to digital and digital touches. And so we helped to power all of those omni-channel type experiences that get delivered. This is very interesting. I founded a, a company in 2013 called Retsley. It was mostly focused on, you know, normalizing and, and uh, democratizing access to accessible real estate data in the form of MLS public records. And especially as we went down learning about public records, I knew very little about any of this when I, and I started. It's always how startups go, right? But, you know, we, we heard a lot from different segments of industry. And, um, you know, it sounds like this is sort of what you're tapping into is how valuable these derivative insights can be. I mean, someone yeah. who's well known in the real estate industry for how they do this would be somebody like maybe Host Canary or even like Black Knight, um, which is very financially or, or real estate driven. But there's a huge market for this derivative understanding of, you know, what the volume of real estate transaction actually means in the macro market. And it sounds like that's generally how you're deriving these base level or maybe even industry specific um, data sets into this broader broader theme. 
Yep. So an example would be that when you visit a discuss page uh, and you're interacting with content, even if you're just reading the content, we can apply NLP to that page to figure out what are the topics that you're gravitating towards. Was the sentiment of the article positive or negative? Um, what's the recency and frequency of your visits to that type of content? And then that helps us understand the consumer in a whole new way, right? So it's beyond just are you male, female, um, you know, your income bracket and so forth. It's a really kind of real time view. We call it data in motion of how a user's preferences and behaviors are changing over time. And when you combine that data in motion view with a more of a data at rest view, which is a very traditional way of doing marketing or even segmentation, you get a very different kind of um, understanding of a consumer. Uh, or even potentially a voter, you know, the elections are coming up and people are more charged up now than, than ever before. And they're gravitating towards content online that really either helps to fortify their viewpoint or potentially helps to educate them about something they're looking to learn about. Those are the same types of signals. I mean, the political marketers are some of the most data-driven marketers that are out there. And one thing I'll say from a, from a DevOps perspective is that you know, at the core of this entire system, you know, you can imagine we're processing something like 100 billion page view signals a month um, on top of 200 million Americans. And on top of that, we, we attach things like location data, we attach transaction data from, from our partners. And so, you know, the amount of data that flows through our queues is just tremendous to maintain and persist. And being able to process that, that on a daily basis and essentially rebuild the models on a daily basis takes tremendous computing power. So there's, there's a huge ops challenge involved in maintaining an asset like this. Um, and uh, you know the Catholic queues and so forth that we put in place have to be um, basically um, very, very efficient to do, the, do this at scale and in a cost efficient way. So all of that is, you know, and, and that really what we call it in, in our vernacular, we call that feeding the identity graph. So an identity graph is a graph that essentially can map um, your digital identifiers with your persistent uh, offline identifiers into one place. And that's always being updated based on the type of activity that you're taking online. Yeah, I was I was going to ask about that. And, and maybe it'd be cool if you could drill a little bit deeper without going into anything to proprietary, but obviously within, you mentioned Kafka and within the open model. Um, one of the things that I very much realized from my experience is that these kinds of, you know, insights are only really achievable at, at a massive kind of scale. So, you know, what are some of those technologies that your team puts in place, you know, within the cloud data and, you know, data cloud division um, that makes some of that possible? Um, you know, where yep. have you found really good success with open source technology like Kafka for, to help yeah, you so get to that Kafka's kind of scale? Yeah, so Kafka's been great. Um, you know, we've made some shifts in our stack from Redshift to Snowflake. Um, you know, Snowflake is going to probably have one of the largest IPOs of the year. Right. Uh, if you guys know, there's some really book. interesting discussion on Twitter about that recently, about the the time in the market at which Snowflake came to be in 2012. Every other data company had just gotten bought, and that was sort of like their AWS moment where they almost were unchallenged. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting yeah. to, to hear as a user. They had a runaway, they had a runaway story. You know, I think that some of the other big players like Microsoft and Amazon are probably looking at that moment and, you know, asking themselves why they didn't swoop in or try to take advantage of the market uh, that was available to them. But, you know, it was sort of a, probably a combination of an oversight and an undersight all happening at the same time. Um, 
that led to that. But so, you know, Snowflake, but for us, I mean, I think that one of the, the biggest considerations for us, and I hear about this as, you know, we're a large company, we're a unicorn, um, you know, the, the last six months have been um, very, very trying on most consumer businesses. So we've spent a lot of time thinking about cost on, and, and certainly our technology infrastructure is one of our largest drivers of cost. And so we're always looking at how we can reduce that. Um, you know, we've moved, moved some of our uh, technologies to data center environments off of AWS. Oh, really? Um, wow. Know, yeah. Well, we when we acquired uh, Seismic, which was a DSP platform, uh, one of the largest DSPs, uh, they were running in a data center environment. And you can think that the requirements of a DSP, you need to have, you know, incredible speed because these are the systems that are essentially bidding on auctions that are happening online. So the requirements that you have with that kind of environment are different than uh, an environment where you'd ha allow for a one day lag or a latency in your, uh, you know, your model builds and things like that. So, um, so they had environments that were well set up for this and uh, we were able to consolidate down. And so some of our moves have been to uh, move from AWS to the DSP data centers that were being consolidated. And that saved us some money. And then, you know, there's just general best practices that we're also trying to instill in our analysts. Because what we find typically is that an analyst will usually want to run a query or actually like a perform an operation as fast as possible, right? There's a business need, a uh, business requirement. They're trying to generate a report. If it's not running through a platform service, which is built for, you know, cost efficiency, typically they're running off of Athena. But Athena, when you are getting into the sort of the higher, um, you know, processing requirements becomes very expensive. And so moving some of those into Hive and other strategies have been used within the team to try to offset costs. But it's a, it's a constant, uh, it's a constant uh, struggle for us. And it's not really, I shouldn't say struggle is the right, right word. It's a constant optimization for us. And, and uh, you know, because we, we, you know, especially in, 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 in an environment where you know most companies uh, in the last six months did some kind of sizing and cost reduction exercise, right? So um, if you can resize your tech and make it more efficient, and by doing so you can save headcount and save people's jobs, um, that is a much better way to go about um, you know reaching your your EBITDA goals. Um, so uh, we've certainly. Uh, taking that approach and you know we value our people more than more than anything else so um you know and and uh so it's been an exercise and we have a great uh you know we have a, a small but very very um you know productive devops team that that runs most of those functions on our side as well yeah that's that's really really interesting i mean to be at the kind of scale and i've heard of this a few times in recent years where the movement off of the sort of, I guess we call it the public cloud back to your own data centers makes sense. Um, that's a really interesting engineering thing. And it's almost a full circle opportunity if you think about cloud computing in general. And it just reinforces to your point that a lot of technology is a journey, right? And it's kind of right thing yep. for the right time. And you get to this place where unit economics allow you to drive down these cost centers and drive more value to not only your people, but your customers likely um, through owning your own infrastructure. and. You know, totally. that, that must come with quite a quite a large overhead for your DevOps team as they think about the tools and the best practices and all of the different supporting things around 
this. Um, but it, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. I think that one of the things that's a little bit different about Zeta is that Zeta uh, um, has been in the business of email uh, for, for many years, like 11 years. And so we've run and we continue to run some of the largest MTAs in the world. Um, so, you know, we send email for, for, you know, most of the enter top enterprises in some capacity or another. So um, we had good experience from the DevOps side in this type of environment. We were comfortable working with this environment, uh, you know, and there's some, there's some nuances about our company that are really unique. So that's one of them. The other one is that we, you know, our operating model has, uh, has offices around the globe. So we have folks in India, we have folks in Prague, we have folks in New York, we have San Francisco, uh, Silicon Valley, and, and an assortment of other cities like Hyderabad in India and Bangalore are two of our centers of excellence. So, uh, you know, through that as well, we've had to think about how we want to distribute our, our technology, um, our resourcing and, um, you know, where everything should, should live to make the company as cost efficient as possible. But, um, but, you know, we're, as I mentioned, we're about a, you know, 11 year old company, 12 year old company. So we had a lot of experience in, uh, data center technology and, uh, we had a, you know, our office of our CIO was, was a well-developed office even prior to, um, the acquisition of boom train and, Frankly, I've learned a lot more about that side of the house since joining. I think a lot of startups, including Boomtrain, were spending you know, huge amounts of money on a, on a monthly basis with AWS. And one of the first and easiest exercises that happens post-acquisition is you know, how do we save money and where? And some of the experience that Zeta brought to the table really helped us uh, along those lines. That's awesome. Well, some of the uh, news that was coming out of KubeCon Europe recently was talking about just how, uh, you know, not just how complicated data centers can be to run, but just how much power consumption. And like you said, it can be this huge cost suck. Like, how do you, how do you think about that? Um, you know, as you're moving, you know, into this, this kind of, I don't know, let's say like this climate change age, have you, have you been involved with any of those conversations about like the, the pure energy consumption that comes from data centers, especially since you I'm guessing are storing quite a huge amount of data yeah. that's coming in from all these different streams. Yeah. So we're still very, very much enabled on the cloud for things that need to happen in real time, um, or things that need that are changing, uh, in a, in a manner that we can support. So, um, I, you know, that's a good, that's a good question, Tristan. I'm actually not probably the best person to answer the energy, um, uh, requirement, but I think that as time goes on, those implications will become more and more. Um, relevant, you know, you can you can sort of see that all the Bitcoin miners, you know, initially basically were mining everywhere they could, and when they realized that certain energy regions were better than others, you saw like server farms go up. Nice. You've also seen people. There's a lot of Bitcoin yeah. hacking into people's environments and running off of their AWS now happening. So mm. I think that that Bitcoin sort of uh, uh, analogy is probably going to be one that is more broadly felt, but uh, not not yet for us, but probably becomes a reality in uh, in a few years as well. Yeah, well, you're, you're well positioned to have a strong control over your your unit economics there with the move to your own data centers anyway, right? And and I think that's probably yeah. one of the most interesting uh, uh, things about going to that lower layer of feasibility within your architecture model is it just opens the door where you know, as that conversation drives into your business, you're able to make motions where 
you know, a lot of people who are just, you know, dependent on the abstract public cloud, you know, you're really at the, the cost of inflation and you're just hoping that, you know, consumerization drives the utility down over time for AWS yeah. and it's democratized. I mean, Moore's law basically, right? Yep. Yep. Moore's law. Exactly. Another big thing is, you know, I think we're, we're kind of always talking about it now when it comes to, uh, the data realm is, you know, this idea of privacy and, you know, what people are willing to share and also like, what's the culture in a certain area, you know, and, you know, yeah. we've seen EU kind of get ahead, start making more legislation, um, you know, and then even like the U S is, you mm -hmm. know, vastly different than like the perceptions in someone in China and the willingness to share, uh, their own personal data. Like, how do you think about that side of it? Um, sure. It's a great question, actually, uh, and that's been on uh, you know all of our minds, my mind specifically, for a long time. And I think that you know generally, uh, and Zeta is more of a marketing technology company. But if you look at the broader ecosystem that includes Martech and AdTech, AdTech just generally had a pretty bad reputation uh, between um, you know the vendors and the consumers. And the reason is because there's a lot of mistrust. Um, and mistrust has existed at many, many different levels in the ad tech ecosystem. First of all, you know, who's tracking you and how are they tracking you and where are they tracking you? Are people listening to your phones? Uh, you know, consumers have all these questions on their mind, right? So, and there's yeah. not a lot of, there's not a lot of clarity in terms of what actually is happening. What, yeah. Because, the Instagram uh, ad or like all of a sudden yeah. I got this Instagram ad and I was like speaking to my friend about it. Yeah. You're like, you're like talking, I like, I know. Last week I was uh, with somebody and they were talking about John Deere tractors, which is a really odd thing for them to be talking about. And the next day they saw an ad for John Deere, like popping up again and again on their uh, on their Instagram. Was that uh, through feed. chat or was that through voice? Because chat, I know, is voice. here. Voice, I yeah. was less, I was less, I was more skeptical. Yeah, it was vo it was voice actually, wow. which was the weird thing, right? And and you know, I, we have a, we have a few people in our company that are convinced that voice is already Activated. channel. We okay. have access to your microphone to different apps. Uh, I'm, a, I'm skeptical about that too, actually, but, uh, but some of the coincidences are just hard to ignore. But so, so, you know, so, you know, Google now has decided that there is, you know, the third party cookie will no longer exist as it has in previous years, right? So what does this do? So for the first thing it does is it entirely disrupts the advertising ecosystem which by and large right now runs off of a third party cookie. And, and, for and those I would who, argue that might be intentional on Google's part. A hundred percent. Yeah. Cause basically, so, so there's, there's two things that are happening here. So by eliminating the third party cookie, you're inherently creating an environment where trust is going to be required. Um, so, you know, basically the consumer is able to then share their information with the first party that they've actually consented to share their information with. So anyone that's downstream from that now falls off. And a lot of the cookie syncs that happen right now and a lot of the actual data tracking and um, you know, sort of audience building that takes place in the market is all being driven by the third party environments. Um, so I get it. And I think that, and I also believe that the future of advertising is going to have to 100% rely on trust because with trust, you can build relevancy for consumers and the companies that are delivering great experiences will also win. Um, but the benefit for Google in this scenario as well is that Google is probably the largest walled garden in the world. 
Facebook uh, you know, maybe close, right? It's kind of Facebook similar. Facebook maybe close. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at Zeta, we like to think that we are an incredibly large walled garden as well because of our disgust presence. Mm. Um, but Google, you think about how many apps they serve to you from Gmail to, um, you know, your Google Analytics suite. Um, you know, authentication is part of their ecosystem. And it's part of their ethos. So they have their first party relationships with basically everybody and um, you know, so they're able to sort of advance their cause at the same time as building trust in the ecosystem. So now, you know, what's happened is that most marketers don't want to rely on just these two walled gardens or these three walled gardens to exist. So there's consortiums that have started and co-ops that have started that are going to also uh, come up through this. And a good example would be the trade desk, uh, which is the largest, um, you know, DSP in the world. Um, and they're going to have their own ID, ID space as well. And, you know, now publishers that are actually monetizing through Google and their advent inventory, you know, authentication is going to become much more important. So, you know, that login or the single sign-on type of event uh, will be um, sort of more prevalent in the internet. We're already seeing a shift to that. Um, I don't think the GDPR as it exists in Europe will take hold in the U.S. I think there are the commercial interests here are different. And uh, frankly, I think the laws here are just different, but, um, but we will see a, a complete refactoring of the, you know, the ad tech ecosystem, um, you know, in, in 12 to 18 months and, um, you know, brands and businesses that are interested in uh, building trust with their consumers will win. And the ones that, don't take actions towards that um, path will will fall out along the way. I'd love. I'm curious. Like as I hear you talk about this, my mind is racing to analogies. And you talk about EU and and the commercial interest, but I also think it's like there's just so many countries with different interests, and there's almost a distributed sort of trust thing there, where EU is kind of trying to handle for a diverse set of interests as, as they would, you know, as a consortium. But then you have the US, which is a more sort of centralized or federated set of interests commercially like you said um that sure. seems in some ways analogous to your strategy with zeta where there's a number of different um products um and there's sort of this distributed trust model where i can build trust with discuss maybe build trust with boom train um, versus how google or facebook are taking sort of that all-in-one federated brand um how do you think about that from both a trust but also a strategic advantage standpoint because i can see lots of different ways in which diversifying that trust um, into segments can be really powerful for how you guys are thinking about this paradigm. It can allow you to hedge, you know, if you have distributed a distributed trust model. Um, you know, I think that the the main thing for for Zeta, which makes us, uh, I think, friendlier on the enterprise side, is that as opposed to Facebook and even Google, we have much more portability and transportability. So when, with our advertisers we're working with, the enterprises we work with. Uh, we're way more open to sharing our, our learnings, right? Like when you run a Facebook campaign, you know, you, here's my audience criteria and here's your result. And whatever happened in the middle is sort of like this black box, um, which is great. I mean, they've created an amazing model around this. Um, that's not really our model. And even our consumer model, um, you know, Discuss is a, um, you know, is a very well-known sort of brand where people have the opportunity to be vocal. Um, it drives publisher engagement. So if you think about what the purpose of Discuss is, it's a tool that helps publishers really give voice to their communities, yeah. right? And get their communities engaged with their products. So 
Um, so from that perspective, it's a very powerful tool to uh, drive engagement on sites. Uh, and it's, it's all the way down to the consumer level. We're trying to empower the voice of the consumer um, it, through the process. And you know, Zeta's approach is really to um, take advantage of tools like that and add tools like that to our ecosystem. And those tools will uh, survive. You know, they'll be the backbone of this new uh, trust-based model that exists in a, a post-cookie, third-party cookie world. And um, so we look, we look at businesses like that in a, in a really interesting way. And, you know, once you have that, um, you know, if you can build more relevance for the consumer and you can allow the advertiser to basically do more with less, you've created a winning scenario on both sides. And so that's sort of the sweet spot at which we, where we want to operate. Yeah, it's very smart. H have you looked at, um, brave browsers so they had the, the basic attention token for a while I mean, what that's sort of an interesting new area of innovation yep. within this model what do you see there and how do you think the world progresses so it's interesting yeah so the attention token so it's essentially the attention token is a, is a way for publishers to monetize um you know and outside of ad revenue or traditional ad revenue um i think it's going to be hard for long tail publishers to really monetize that way uh, and the reason why is because I think the, the, the payments are happening at such a small scale. Uh, you know, if you look at Discuss's publisher volume, there are probably 5 million publishers. Many, many, many of them are long tail, right? So they're small publishers. They don't have logins on their sites. So uh, I don't know if Brave is going to be a solution for those kinds of guys. Um, you know, at the top end of this, of course, there's a lot of ways you can go keep those publishers in business and keep them providing good content. But, um, but Brave has certainly done something interesting, right? Um, the bat, the, you know, the token is an interesting way to reward um, providing relevance and reward providing, um, you know, service that consumers are attracted to. Um, I, I don't really see it taking off, you know, a really wide way because of the nature of the, you know, the publishing environment, but I think there's some takeaways from that that will that will certainly exist in the future, uh, in the future state. Yeah, it seems like a strong advancement on you know a prospect for the trust model. You know that's very consumer yeah. friendly, but maybe doesn't have like to your point the unit economics to play out at scale. Or yeah, I think they've nailed the consumer side. Yeah, I think they've nailed you know the consumer side is very strong, but to make this ecosystem work. You know, you need to actually have a have a reward system for the publisher that's going to work too. Yeah. Otherwise, it's like any mark. It's like a marketplace, right? Yeah. To some degree, that both sides need to see the value to continue. And uh, and so, you know, and and you know, to some degree, Google has a conflict of interest because they want to do these changes to the and create these changes in the ecosystem, but they also run a very significant ad business. So, you know, and if the changes that they're implementing are primarily or they're one of the biggest benefactors of those changes that creates a little bit of a conflict of interest, even though I think intentionally um, the notion that they're trying to build more trust in the ecosystem is 100% the right thing to do. Um, I think that's the way that ad tech um, sort of recovers from some of the negative reputation it's seen over the last 10 years. And that's the way that in inevitably that consumers will win by getting a better experience and I think marketers and brands will win too because they'll be able to do, you know, again, do less with, um, do more with less, essentially. So, yeah, it's so maybe even going back a second, like, what, 
you know, was it, you know, the industry, was it the consumer privacy push? Like what, what sort of trends pushed Google to do this in the first place? Good question. Um, I think that there is essentially uh, in the industry, some headwinds uh, that are just, I'm sorry, some tailwinds that are just have been moving this way for a long time. Right. So, uh, you know, you, you, you look at retargeting and the notion of retargeting. So you, you go to a page and then you see that ad like eight more times and then they expire you from uh, their targeting. You know, I think that the way that browsers were passing data um, uh, between uh, you know, different companies was just something that needed to be regulated. And people have taken different approaches like GDPR is a very strict standard. Right. So virtually overnight, um, you know, just troughs of European data was, were, were purged from systems worldwide. And they've created a system where you have to provide explicit consent. So it's an opt in system to actually provide your data to a to a partner. Uh, the U.S. by and large is operates more like an opt out system. So you have to opt out if you don't want to provide your data um, or that's the way things are at least heading. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, I think that third party tracking was just something that was happening and, you know, was being perceived as nefarious activity at some level. And the idea that it was doing something nefarious behind the scenes, that idea continued to gain momentum. And certainly there are, you know, bad apples that were doing bad things with the data. So, um, you, you know, you've probably example, heard about, obviously without calling anyone. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, I, I'd really yeah, interested to understand. I think that for, let's take location data, for example, yeah. right? So your phone, um, and your location of where you're, where you're moving and, oh, yeah. um, on a regular basis. So, you know, there are a lot of location data providers out there, right? You can buy the made IDs against places of interest that they've visited, but not all of them are collecting the, those location and data points and consent, um, proper ways. So as the end consumer, I mean, you are basically being tracked in a way that I think the general consumer wouldn't understand, right? They don't know that when they, when they just move around the world with their phone in their pocket, someone knows where they're going and what they're doing. Um, now there are, you know, and you can make the case that when you opt into an app and they show you their terms and conditions and you just click accept, well, you probably still don't know everything they're doing with your data, but there's been at least one checkpoint along the way. So th these are the types of use cases where I think they're trying to really put um, kibosh on the spread of data beyond um, where the relationship exists. And so, you know, that one location partner may have been taking that data and reselling it to eight other partners who arbitraged it and sold it to five other partners. So all of a sudden that one data point that it was originally established, maybe through consent or maybe not, has now been shared downstream with, you know, however many players. And that's where things get a little bit tricky. Um, you know, the user is not really getting value out of all of those um, sales and resale of their data. Um, and, and so, you know, that's not really a fair model which, in which uh, the world can operate. So that's just one example, but there's a lot of examples like this. One, um, one way that I've thought about this, and I guess this is more from the time I spent on public records data, especially in the real estate industry, is, you know, there is a lot of this data that's just public record. It's 
county and it gets aggregated up, you could say it's, it's you know, at very least municipally available, if not federally consolidated in most circles. And it's just public records. It's like right of sure. information. And, and this is sort of like some of that founding American ideals of the Freedom of Information Act, et cetera, right? Yeah. So when I look at that, I, I've always just set that as my baseline and thought, okay, well, you know, I'd be it I'm not Canadian, but if I were, or I'm not American, I'm Canadian, so we have different privacy laws. But if I was American, I'd say, okay, well, there's this baseline of freedom of information. And so I'm open to the idea that when I'm in the public domain, and maybe this is a bit libertarian, there's certain rights that I give up, and, and that's reinforced by some of this freedom of information. And as I thought about yep. that, as it goes to technology, I've always thought, okay, well, I mean, there's at very least this data is um, to, in some regards, you know, indistinguishable to me. If not, I'm hiding in numbers as I would be in any kind of mass public environment. Uh, yeah. But so I, I, I feared it a little bit less, I think, as a consumer. But I'd be really interested in to hear your take on how this data and this data at scale and that anonymity or even some of that concept, where the as the converges into the world of AI and these this supercomputing that we actually have, yeah. what the world starts to look like, and and should I still potentially have this sort of, um, you know less worried viewpoint of it because we've all seen Skynet and we know how, or, you know, some totally. futuristic movies and we all know how those turn out. Where, where do you think the intersection so, so, of AI in this come, come in? Yeah. So, you know, AI is sort of rooted in my, in my background or as we used to call it machine learning. Yes. Now it's more fancy so, known as, yeah. as AI. Uh, but um, yeah, that's a great question. So I think getting back to your original question or your original point, so data is available in the public sphere, but you always have to look at what are the acceptable uses of the data, because even if you can get census data and you can pull it down into an environment where you can run analytics against it, you're not always permitted to do things with the data, right? So, so that one, one caveat is that uh, although your data is out there, it's not you know, necessarily um, available for all use, and, and that's a checkpoint that has really never been well patrolled. Um, and this is mostly licensing constraints. Is this how you? How yeah, you there, I think so. And, and even if you know, like, so you might be able to get data for measurement and, and uh, for analytics, but not for targeting. This is a very common thing that you see in the data ecosystem right. when you license data. So there'll be acceptable use cases and, and and use cases that are not accepted. But just generally speaking, I agree with you. I think that by being online. Um, you know, I think generally when you're surfing the internet, you know, somebody's providing a service to you and for that service, whether it's entertainment or it's information, uh, you know, you are, you are providing them with something and it's, you know, as a utopian as I'd love the world to be, it's not a free place. So, uh, everyone needs to uh, be paid for their sort of their, their contribution. Um, right now, maybe people aren't being paid as fairly as they could. Maybe they are, you know, that's a debate for another day, but I definitely think that what you're getting at and is this notion of, um, when the convergence of signals that you collect intersects with the way that machine learning or AI is going, you start to build things that are incredibly predictive in a way that they never could be. Right, so I'll give you an example over that use. I think I would think. I mean, I hope that we have control over AI. You know, the mythical AI. I, when it shows I up. think but I mean, we we still. I would say we still we still have control right now over the AI. But you know, when things become non-intuitive to humans, is when things start to start getting a little tricky. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. Um, so we you know we work with some of the gig companies and 
you know, last year we found that um, people that wear sleepwear or purchase sleepwear, right, with higher frequency indexed high for one of the audiences that the gig companies was trying to acquire. And, and so I was like, well, that makes absolutely no sense to me. And, you know, we looked at the data again and we looked at the data a third time. We're like, well, it's right there. There's the signal. So what you start to find is these like non-intuitive signals. If you just feed these systems, large unstructured sets of data, uh, you know, these non-intuitive signals start to emerge as being uh, parts of the, uh, the model, right? Features of the model. And when the machines can start doing that and then start creating their own ideas uh, around how to basically run compute um, and build the best outcomes, then, uh, then you start to get into sort of a scarier world. Um, so, you know, I think that the hype of, at least in marketing technology, there's a lot of great machine learning happening. Um, we are not yet close to machines fully taking over marketing functions. And I don't think we're going to be there in it for a long time. I think the function of AI is at least in the context of marketing technology is very much to assist the marketer and to make their job easier and to make consumer experiences better. And usually what that means is you're individualizing the experience. You're adding personalization. You're not, re you're not replacing the job of the marketer. Um, you're more uh, basically adding fidelity to the way that they market. Um, but then, you know, I've read in other ways, I think that there was recently, I forget the name of the company, but a company that basically start, has a technology that basically allows um, the AI to write articles and uh, it writes its own content and it's writing articles that are virtually indiscernible from human written content, yeah. right? So from that perspective, it's a pretty amazing feat, right? So. Um, especially if the articles have depth to them and they have, you know, uh, interest and you can really, you know, you can get someone to really, uh, read that and, and be taken by it. So, uh, we're definitely headed down this path and, um, it's going to be a pretty amazing, this is it. Yeah. And it's going to be a pretty amazing world when, uh, these kinds of things exist. And I think, you know, for, for as many, uh, people that are scared that it will take away jobs, and take away, um, you know, the human uh, kind of innovation mindset, I think it's going to create even more. And I think it's going to create even more opportunities to innovate uh, based on these new frameworks that, that exist and that come out because there'll be so many more and, and use cases you can think of when these types of technologies become sort of um, prevalent. Yeah, I see a lot of also value i guess we, we call this the workflow but it's it's not necessarily the analyzation of like large data at scale to derive you know macro level insights like how you're specialized in right but we think a lot about how contextual events can drive chaining of workflows that actually remove a lot of um, friction for the user so that the average person can spend time on more meaningful work and, and a great example of this is something called the depend bot or dependabot um, and it's essentially this this open source or uh, third-party SaaS solution that plugs into people's GitHub repos, looks for dependencies that have security vulnerabilities who need to be updated, automates a per pull request. And in recent time, what we started to see is these bot, this bot that would do has been doing this for many years, and all of these developers getting overwhelmed with all the amount of emails, and it's like, oh, great, Dependabot's out again. Um, but now people have started automating the acceptance of those with other bots. And so suddenly you have a bot opening a pull request that accepts by another pull, another bot and suddenly the repo no longer has a security vulnerability. And to me, that is yep. the onset of 
Um, where yeah. I hope this thing sits for a little while because I think that's a very useful approach to automation, whether it's automation intelligence or AI, I would say it's the former. Uh, but I, I think there's really practical ways of us enhancing the human workflow by just making totally. these systems communicate better. And it doesn't necessarily require this massive aggregation of data necessarily, but it does require very contextual signal, which often is measured out of that very large data. And, and that's obviously the great work you're doing. So I'll give you an example. So I think that's a, a really great example of where automation and AI start to converge. And another example would be, you know, when a, when a content site, pick your leading news publisher, is sending you a newsletter, right? If the marketer had their way, and what marketers used to do is they used to try to create segments and say, oh, this person is really interested in sports, so I want to give them a sports newsletter. This person is really interested in national news. This person is interested in stocks. So you start to create all these segments, but at some point the segments almost become like unmanageable, right? How far you can make 15 segments, 20 segments, and then all of a sudden your workload is just completely crippling you. Yeah. But now if you, you can just have one newsletter where the, you let the AI pick out the content recommendations that would be uh, inserted for any given individual, you essentially get millions and millions of permutations of that newsletter, each one purpose built for that end recipient. And that's really kind of a, a similar example of how you can use AI and automation to create, you know, much improved experiences in this case for the consumer. But in your example, it was for, you know, the developer that was involved in a, you know, in a tedious workflow. So yeah. the hard thing is sometimes agree. breaking it down into those unit pieces that can be orchestrated into the context right. that still makes rational sense for per the person personification um, that you're targeting. Yeah. Um, so you almost need you almost need another bot on the end on the other side of the of the equation. To say here's what's coming in. Let me figure out what to do with all this and what actually the developer needs to handle. Yeah. And what I can actually handle all by myself without any other input. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think the reason my example works is it's a bot doing a very specific and narrow thing that another bot can understand. Yeah. But as the context of that or the content to the to the marketing and newsletter analogy is that grows, it becomes very hard for them to share a language. Yeah. And that's where ultimately you, you know, can very quickly um, using automation actually increase the the mental context required from an individual. And then it's like, we're kind of going backwards here on this one. How do we thin it up, <laughs> right? Uh, low context automation, yeah. I guess, is probably one way to describe it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I like the idea of like this, yeah, this bot versus bot, bot v bot with like <laughs> each with different sets of context that then managing the workflow between two people. Uh, this meanwhile, is, the person just sitting on the side drinking their coffee. Yeah, watching. Yeah. I like this, this is a good candidate for our, uh, a domain that we just bought. We just got um, ops.bot and uh, we were oh, okay. thinking about uh, subdomains that would uh, allow us to list out all the different kinds of bots for different purposes. And uh, just, I think it's an interesting idea of like, how do we get machines? And this is really what that word bot means at the end of the day, but how do we get machines to talk to each other with uh, with more context, less, um, you know, less human interaction, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, we also we also have been looking into, you know, taco bots and, and things like that and, you know, Nija's nickname is Nijorno, actually, because he's a he's a great pizza chef. So, you know, maybe we'll have to you have to you might have to look into buying some uh, domains around. One day I'll just have a bot to make the pizza. I'll just supervise the bot. 
It'll be more fun for me. We'll give you pizza.offs.bot. We'll give you the sub. Oh, I love it. There you go. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I love that. Or we're just running up on time here. Uh, any last thoughts, Nige, that you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, just great to have uh, you guys have me on the show for you guys. I really appreciate it. And it's been a really compelling conversation. And everyone that's at home right now, I know that the last six months have been rough. Uh, I know people are, uh, you know, have grown a little stir crazy. So I'd say hang in there, um, take care of each other, take care of yourselves, and let's make the best of uh, 2020 into 2021. Great note, I love the note. positivity. Yeah. yeah. Where can we find you online, Nish? Um, you can find me online on, let's see, Instagram. My handle is Nish Kid. Uh, my Facebook is just Nish Gore. G O R E is my last name. And I'm on LinkedIn and uh, I'm on TikTok, but you won't really find me there. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely going to have to do some searching around the that last aids. one. I want to see the renegades. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for today. Uh, remember to click subscribe to see our weekly shows and videos and always post your favorite comment, post your, post your favorite parts of the show in the comments, as well as anyone you'd like to see us bring on to the op show. Uh, with that, take us out, Kyle. All right. Great show. Thanks so much. Nish. It was, uh, it was a good discussion. Cool. Thank you, Nish. Always so.